Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole, and today we have some very, very special guests. I'm so excited. I've been waiting on this podcast for the longest time. They have more number one songs than any other songwriting and production team in music history, 41 top 10 records, 16 hot 100 number ones, 26 R&B number ones, over 30 years of hits, number one songs in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. What's up? Five time. But you know, good. you guys are so quiet. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast is I've, I've only heard you a couple times talk a little bit about the things that you have done and the music that you made. And I was really wanted to get you on here. I, I was telling you all that I did Kenny Gamble and I'm working on a couple other legacy um, podcasts because I want this stuff to just kind of sit in history so people can know like how much you all have done in music, how much you mean to black music. So welcome to the Backstory Podcast. Um the first time you got a Grammy uh, nomination, you won. So that must have just Yay. been like super awesome. Like I was like, you know how many people be struggling with awards? And it's like, you guys do this amazing album. You get all these Grammy nominations and you win producer of the year. And that must have just been the most amazing feeling in the world. It was an amazing feeling in the world to win. But first of all, it was an amazing feeling to actually get nominated. And the story I remember from back in that day was that we had a publicist at the time who told us that we should come to the, when they would read who the nominees were. Yep. And it was at the time, it was like five in the morning or six in the morning. It was like really early. And we were like, well, why, why do we need to be there? And he said, no, you should be there because if you get nominated, at that point in time, there was only a couple of, you know, CNN and some local outlets. But right. they said, they're going to come and look who's in the room. And if you're in the room, they're going to interview you. And we were like, okay, cool. At the time, we're living in Minneapolis, so right. we're not part of the whole L.A. Hollywood thing. And so sure enough, when they read our names, all the cameras turned to us, and then all the interviews afterwards were, you know, talking to us. And as it turned out, it was a great thing because there wasn't a lot of spotlight put on producers. And all of a sudden, there was a camera on us and people asking our opinion about stuff and that. And that was the thing that really, I think, started that whole, um, you know, the idea of you know, that we could actually win a Grammy. Because in our minds, it wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't even in our minds to do that. But so, so what did you do with that first Grammy? Where, where, did, it, where did you put it? They're actually upstairs, right, where we're talking. Oh, right? wow. In, in our studio, yeah. Wow. Right upstairs. And back in that day, the Grammys were, like, made out of wood. It was, like, a whole different Grammy. Right. <laughs> it was, like, made out of wood and stuff, and it, and you could unscrew the, you know, the horn part of the, the record and stuff. and. But we have those, but then we have the newer ones, too. So that's kind of cool to watch, see them next to each other and go like, oh, we've been around long enough to actually have won both uh, both versions, I guess you could say. So you guys are from Minneapolis. So you met in the Upward Bound program in high school. Tell us a little bit about that, your first time meeting each other. Well, my first time meeting Terry was, the thing about Upward Bound, it was at the University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We were both in junior high school at the time. I think I was 13. Terry was like 15 years old. And um, but it was cool because you got to stay in dorms right during the summer. It was like, wow, that's crazy. So but what I remember meeting Terry when I saw him the first time, he was sitting on the bed in his room. He had a red, black and green bass and he was playing Cool in the Gang. And I remember what, just, what song? Man, I couldn't tell you. Man. That's, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I'm trying to, I, you know what, I, I don't even know. Summer Madness? What, what, was it just the music? No, it was, was even before that. No, it was, no, it was oh. probably funky stuff or yeah. is during oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, during the period. It was 70, 72, I think. Uh-huh. 
but I just looked at him and uh, I basically grew up, I, I had older brothers and I had half brothers and half sisters that were a lot older than me. So I basically grew up as an only child. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Terry and all these thoughts went through my head like, like, who's this dude? Like, oh man, he's cool. I got to get to know him. But it almost felt like, you know, I wish that was my big brother, or, you know, whatever. Like Terry was just so cool to me. And I just felt like I got to get to know. It was like, for me, it was like love at first sight. I got to right. get to know this brother. So is this where the beginnings of like, you know, let's perform together? When was the first time you all performed together? Actually at Upward Bound. Okay. Uh, at the end of the summer, there was always a dance or a party, whatever you want to call it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, back then people didn't dance that much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was a party. So we asked, could we play? Because... Uh, early in the the program, I saw Jimmy in the uh, lunchroom playing piano, right. Swoon and the girls, and I was already in a band, and we needed a keyboard player. So I was like, "Hey, man, you should be a keyboard player for us. We could get together." And he said, "Well, I'm not a keyboard player. I'm a drummer." I was like, "Oh no, man. Your dad plays keyboard. You right. can play keyboard. <laughs> right. so, come on, man, just play." So uh, the name of our band at that time was the Wars of Armageddon, mm-hmm. and uh, it consisted of. Uh, Jam, Jelly Bean Johnson, wow. David Island, and myself. And we just jammed. And so you all were kids. Just yeah, kids. we were like wow. 13, like 13, 14 years old. So then is that kind of leads into your group, Fly Time, the group? Fly Time. Fly Time. Those members actually were members of Flight Time. Okay. And uh, Jam was a member of Flight Time early on, and then he went off and he did his own group, mm-hmm. Mind and Matter. And uh, they were a rival group, and they, they got that butter. They kicked that butt a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, and we got our butt kicked a couple but times. But he was your big bro mentor. You left him to go do something else? Yeah, nice. but, you know, but that was what was so cool about it was, like, literally, it was. I felt like it was an honor to get my ass kicked by Terry's band. Right. Because I just, I love Terry. And we had a couple gigs where, you know, I remember telling my mom one time, Man, this band Flight Time, they're so good, blah, blah, blah. And then they just had a really bad night. Right. And, you know, we kicked their ass. You know, it was like, okay, cool. But then the next time we played this big outdoor festival and totally, Terry had totally switched everything. And we went out there and we were okay. Right. Terry switched everything up, man. They had a horn section, they had all this stuff. It was like crazy. And I'm looking from the stage and Terry's like looking at me and I'm looking at him and I'm going, you. Right, uh, you, know, you know, but I'm like, but in my mind, it's total respect. It's totally like, I, I love this dude. He's so what, kicking my butt, but I, I love this dude. So you guys were performing all around Minneapolis. And mm-hmm. so when did you decide to leave that band and get back with Flight Time? As the story goes, I was uh, actually going out with this girl and we broke up. Okay. And I was walking home from her apartment. This is now we're probably, I want to say, probably 19, 20 years old now at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, as I'm walking by this, I walk by this club and I hear music coming out of it. So I poke my head in and it's like maybe five or six o'clock early in the day still. And um, I look and it's Terry's playing. And I'm like going, oh, what's up, Terry? He goes, hey, what's up, Jam? I said, what are y'all doing? And he says, oh, we're rehearsing at this place. The guy lets us rehearse here and, you know, whatever. And we're like, okay, cool. And Terry's back on the, man, you need to join the band. You need to join the band. Okay. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, you know, whatever. Okay. And in every day, this is before cell phones, so every day Terry would call my house. And he'd go, come on, Jam, you got to join the band. And I'd go, Terry, man, no, I, I just broke up with this girl, man. I'm not, get your mind off it, man. You know, right, right, I'm like, right. no. And then, uh, and then he called me the next day. 
what you gonna do, man? I, I, Terry, I don't even have my keyboards, man, because I, I had sold all my keyboards and, and started DJing. I brought right. turntables and everything. I started was DJing. I said, I don't have my keyboards anymore. What kind of keyboards you need, man? We'll get you the keyboards, man. I was like, man. So he kept twisting my arm, and finally I said, okay, yeah, I'm gonna come on and, and do the gig with them. And then that's how we all ended up, you know, getting together. And literally right after that was when, you know, flight time became the time. Right. So I mean, we did a couple gigs. I remember one gig we opened. I just thought about this the other day because I just saw Cameo play the other right. night. But we did this gig opening up for Cameo. Wow. Cameo and, I, and uh, not the Barge, but uh, um, Switch. Switch. Yep. Cameo and Switch. Cameo and Switch. Oh man, that was a good show. It was it a good. It was a great show. I mean, we we were like, and we were we were into it. And Alexander O'Neill was our lead singer at that point. Right. And. Um, but I remember when it was the show was over, and you know we're packing our stuff up because we don't we don't have big time, we don't have roadies or nothing, so we're right. packing our equipment up. And the dude was you know packing up this stuff for cameo, and like he looked at us and he said, "Y'all ain't never gonna be nothing." Wow, just out of the blue, just out of the blue. Like we're not even we're not engaging him in conversation. We're not right. trying to meet people or nothing. Right, we're right. just like you know going about our business. And I remember right. he said that, and he was like kind of sweeping the stage as he said it, and I'm right. going, "What?" So anyway. Fast forward about six months later, we're in Detroit, and now the time, get it up, the single is out. Right. We're in Detroit. We open for Cameo and Shalimar. Okay. Wow. That's another great show. Another great show. Who was lead singer of Shalimar at that time? It was, it was, I think Howard Howard was still there. Okay. Howard was still there. Got it. And, you know, Shalimar was cool. They, They were, they did their thing. But when Morris came out, and nobody had ever seen us perform, right. they just knew Get It Up is all they knew. But Detroit was like a Prince crazy town. So as soon as we went into the song The Stick, just mm. nothing but drum. Boom, 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 boom. Single spotlight on Morris right. with his back to the audience right. combing his hair. You would have thought the Beatles had hit. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it was like, ah. Right, right. People lost their minds. He was a great point person to have in a group. Oh, he the best. The mm-hmm. best. So... And so Cameo went out, and they weren't very good, quite honestly, and which was heartbreaking to us because we love Cameo, Absolutely. you know. And they weren't very good. And after all the talk was, oh my God, the time, kill, oh my God, right. the time, we saw that same dude after the show, and he just looked at us, and he just shook his shook his head. There was nothing to say. Wow. And that was such an important lesson for us early on. Yeah. Like, you never underestimate people. You never, yeah. you know, you just don't do that. Yeah. You know? So Plus it was that's, a good that's bad karma on you and energy on you anyway. You don't, you, yeah. you know, you support one another. You don't exactly. beat them down. So I understand that one of the other members before Alexander O'Neill was the woman that sang Funky Town. Which I did not know she was from yeah. Cynthia. Cynthia Johnson. Yeah. yeah. So you had a lot of great musical people like around you. And then, of course, Alexander O'Neill, who. I mean, he's one of the greatest singers ever, man. I Agreed. just, I mean, Agreed. just an amazing voice. Yep. So I understand now a little bit about as we get further into your career and we talk about it, we, we talk a little bit about Alexander O'Neill. But I want to get into from flight time to time and Prince because that was also the same period where Prince had, you know, he blew up in the mid 70s and he was. This is before Purple Rain, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure in Minneapolis it was a big deal that Prince was, you know, having so much success. It probably was great for the music scene in Minneapolis. And then he has a deal or something with Warner Brothers that he's allowed to 
sign groups and then he gets you guys. So what was it like yeah. when Prince is like, yeah, I want to bring you on and take time out to the country? What did that feel like? <laughs> well, well, first of all, when Prince left Minneapolis, everybody was happy that he left. Okay. Because, like, no one was getting out of Minneapolis black. That just yeah. I think Rocky Robbins was the only person that ever mm-hmm. came up on a record somewhere in the national level, mm-hmm. black out of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And we had so many great musicians. Yep. So when Prince got out, you know, as people used to say, Prince got over. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then that just gave us all hope that, you know, we could do things on a national level. And so when he came back and, and offered us an opportunity, I mean, we were elated. Um, we didn't even know what it was going to be at mm-hmm. the time, you know. Uh, but he and Morris had worked out their own deals, and, and actually Morris talked to us and asked us to be a part. And, um, you know, right before that, Prince had called me and asked me him asked me to be his bass player because um, Andre Simone was leaving. So I wow, said, that's cool. another great person. Wow. Yeah. Just all that energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was leaving, and, and I said, cool, until Morris called. Then I said, uh, I'd rather do the thing with Morris. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, um, but the, just the energy of Minneapolis musically was just awesome. It was it was on fire just because we were so competitive with each other. And, and I can see now, just looking back, I, I totally understand why when you guys ascended as producers, you brought everybody to Minneapolis. You're like, no, we got this great energy. We got great musicians. You're coming to Minneapolis to to record with us. I totally understand it. When usually it doesn't work that way. It's like, oh, we're in L.A. or we're in New York. We get away from our hometown. But you made it a point. The Minneapolis sound was very important to you all and the musicians. I'm sure so many people are appreciative that you all did that because you probably gave a lot of work to people and musicians in uh, Minneapolis. We did, but it was really important. First of all, the the living environment yes. was very important. Mm-hmm. Um, Clarence Avant, who obviously a very important part of our lives um, as far as just, you know, giving us the knowledge and, and the help that we needed the early Godfather. on. It was very important. And he's always said, you know, don't look at the Hollywood sign when you're driving because you're going to crash. And that was basically the analogy of don't become Hollywood like that. It's not a, just stay focused on what it is you do. And so for us, Terry made the observation that L.A. is pretty crazy. And we should just move back to Minneapolis just because we just want to make music. We're not really right. trying to go to parties. We're not trying to right. you know, meet people. We just want to make music, and we can really do that anywhere. Right. And at the same time we kind of made that decision, we were working on uh, with Sherelle. Right. And Sherelle felt a lot of pressure being in the studio for the first time. I and mean, she'd been in the studio before as a background singer, but not as a lead singer. And we were sitting in the studio and just not really coming up with stuff. And it was funny. We literally went to this little basement studio in Minneapolis that these people had called Creation Audio. And literally the first day we were there, we came up with Didn't Mean to Turn You On. And we knew, oh, yeah, that's the environment we need to be in. And if we can get people out of the L.A. environment, bring them to Minneapolis, and just make records. Yeah, less distractions. Less distractions. Yeah. and, and that's, less pressure on us as well. Yeah. And that was always the thing because L.A. was so much pressure. Right. And the people that we were around were people that were family members. They were friends and people that knew us not as Jam and Lewis, you know, producers or anything like that. They just knew us from Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis. We grew up. We're part of the neighborhood, you know. And that was important, too, just to be grounded in what we were doing 
without all the trappings of um, success or stardom or whatever that was. So before we uh, move into the producing part, I do want to say um, the music for the time at that time was something that we never heard on the radio. I'll tell you, the first time I heard any music from you, I think it was either 81 or 82, I was with my family. I was a kid, and I went to Disney World in Orlando, and it was some AM radio station, and I heard 777-9311, and I stopped. Just the intro of the song, because mm-hmm. I was telling you guys before, you know, when I was a kid, I always practiced over songs if I was going to be on the radio, and mm-hmm. you guys had the best intro. Mm-hmm. But when I first heard that song, like, and then when I heard uh, Get It Up and Cool, like, man, you guys had some, some <laughs> amazing music. Now, I understand that Prince was really the visionary at that time, putting totally. it all together. Absolutely. So what was that like? Because you guys are musicians, and you kind of taking a backseat to Prince, who actually choreographed the whole project. What was that like, brother? I was riding that backseat any yeah, day of the week. Yeah, ain't that the truth? You that's know, a, that's a great backseat to be. <laughs> yeah, in. That's a great backseat. So you think that that kind of helped you along as being producers, just being able to sort of watch him work? Well, I think partly that. I, I think we were destined to be what we became anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was uh, preordained. But mm-hmm. learning from Prince was was special um, because. The way he did things, his work ethic, is it was next to none. He worked tirelessly on anything that had to do with music. I always say Prince is music. Like, mm-hmm. he wakes up in the morning, brushes his teeth to music. He does mm-hmm. everything to music. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what taught us to just work, just work, get it done. So, but, and by the way, I just, I, and I'll just add to that, that the work ethic was probably the, the biggest thing that I took away from Prince. Besides all the other lessons and being in the studio and all that, that was all great. But how hard he worked. Like literally back in that day, he would rehearse, come and rehearse our band for five hours. Then he'd go rehearse the revolution for five hours. Then he'd go in the studio. And then the next day he'd come to our rehearsal with a cassette. And it would be 1999 or it would be like some crazy. And we'd be like, damn. And he'd go, I did this last night. (laughs) What? You know. So hard to keep up with. Yeah. So it was so it was that. The other thing, though, was when people think of the time, they think about the live shows. And the live shows, that was our chance to put our stamp on what the time was. Because the records were done. Prince did the records. Prince and Morris did those records. Mm-hmm. But, he, but Prince was very much, it has to be better than the record. And, and the story I always tell about that is, is for me personally, was, and 777 actually is the song. Um, when we were doing 777, my part on the song was just one little baseline thing it was just mm-hmm. wah, 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 wah. that's all it was wah, wah, wah. that was it right that's amazing so just, though but that's just one hand right so that's see i'm playing my one hand part so we do the song and but Prince goes the song would never be the same without that part in it <laughs> well but but so, right exactly yeah. so anyway we do the song and prince is at the rehearsal listening and and he goes jimmy jam what are you doing with your other hand so i'm not doing anything prince he's, i'm just playing a little bass part right he said the chords that monty's doing do those chords with monty and I go, it's not like that on the record, Prince. He says, it's got to be better than the record. Okay, wow. cool. So wow. now I'm boom, boom, boom. Uh, 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 so I'm playing the parts, right? We do the song. Prince goes, Jimmy Jam, what note are you singing on the course? I say, Prince, I'm not singing a note on the course. You got, you know, Terry and Jesse and Morris, they're doing a three-part harmony, whatever, whatever. Right. Find a note. So it's not like that on the record, Prince. It's got to be better than the record. Wow. Great. So now I'm doing my part. Dun, 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 dun. I'm a seven, 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 nine, three, eleven. So I'm right. doing my part, right? Right. We run through the song. Prince goes, Jimmy Jam, how come you're not doing the choreography? <laughs> Prince, I'm behind a keyboard, man. What do you want me to do? And he's like, yeah, it's simple choreography. You should be able to do it. 
Wow. So now I'm just doing, I'm trying to hit my part. I'm trying to do choreography. Totally frustrated. Can't do it. I'm like so pissed off, right? Mm -hmm. Go home. Next day, practice hits. Prince walks in, 777. And in my mind, I'm going, oh my God, here we go. We start playing it. I hit everything perfectly. And I hit it so perfectly that by the time we're run through it about two or three times, now I'm taking the hanky out of my pocket, I'm patting myself down, tipping my glasses, I'm grabbing my hat, I'm doing all this stuff. And what it taught me was two things. Work ethic, like we said before. Right. But also that Prince had a belief in us that we could do things that we weren't even aware we could do. Like a, like a great coach, right? And that's what he was. And, and while we didn't always agree with his ways of going about doing things, yeah. the results spoke for themselves. And he basically created Frankenstein because then we'd go out and kick his ass in right. concert. But it would be, but you created this, dude. So from what yeah. I understand on a controversy tour, it was a competition between you all and the revolution. It was a controversy what? tour. Yeah. Oh, it definitely was a controversy <laughs> tour. <laughs> and I understand it was one moment where they threw uh, eggs at you all while you were performing. Is that true? <laughs> A prince was yeah, throwing eggs was, at you? No, that was the... So as things built up... On the last night in Cincinnati. Last night in Cincinnati, but things built up to that point. Because mm-hmm. remember, at the first the first thing was we would... First, we would... Like all opening acts will tell you this story, pretty much. We didn't never got sound checks, right? Which is why we'd always do the stick as our first song. Because the stick was like our sound check because it started off with nothing but drums. So the sound man could get our drum stuff together, could get our little keyboard stuff before we actually launched into a song, right? Then we would only have, we started off with about four lights. We got put down to like two lights. If you look at old footage of that, you'll see like two lights flashing back and forth. We're in the dark. We're in the dark, basically. And then we had, then the stage started getting smaller and smaller. We'd get on stage and be running into each other because the stage would get a little smaller. And then, wow. uh, and then at one point, there was a keyboard that I used uh, for my, all my bass lines. Right. Did all of a sudden, one day, we walked in, and that keyboard's gone, and there's this new keyboard. And we're like, what's up? And the guy who was the tech goes, oh, this is the brand new keyboard, you know, whatever. And we're like, oh, whatever. And I can't find a bass sound on there to save my life. And I'm like, oh, where's my old key? I like my old keyboard. Oh, and then we retired that one. I'm like, what? Wow. So there was all these challenges just in our trying to perform. So we... You know, we were heated about that kind of right. stuff. So when we, by the time we got down to the to the last gig in Cincinnati, there had already been kind of a little bit of a food fight type of thing beginning to happen at the hotel. Right. And we were told by management, though, you can't do anything to Prince. But meanwhile, Prince is doing stuff to right. us, right? Throwing eggs at you. Throwing eggs and right. doing all that stuff. Right, right, right. So we're like, okay, cool. So we went back between, so before Prince goes on, we go back and we get like big garbage bags, those big brown garbage bags you used to have. We put those things on. Like we made outfits out of the garbage bags. Right. And people saw us and they were like, ain't that the time? Like, what, what are they doing? Right. And we had eggs and peanuts and we had all kinds of, we just, right. And we're just like, look. And so we would, we went out and while he was playing, we were standing right on the side, just like looking. And he was panicked. He knew we were we were nuts. Right, we were right, like, right, right. You mess with he created Frankenstein. Folks. I mean, you guys, yeah, were the, yeah. He really did. And um, I remember we didn't mess with his show, but when he, as soon as that show was over, he hit his last note. He tried to run off stage, <laughs> and we were like, "Bam, bam!" We were like throwing stuff at him and whatever. He ran around the back of the stage. Uh, Zap was on that tour. Roger and Zap. Wow. Their drum set was in, sitting on the side of the stage. Right. That got knocked to the floor. Oh no. 
And then he went running out the back of the arena, but he was slipping on banana peels and egg stuff and all that. And he went running out the back of the arena. And it was crazy. But then his guy, who, who uh, locked up Big Jesse? Oh. Big, who, yeah. No, no, no. Je- the, Jellybean, right? Didn't he get locked? Somebody no, got Jesse handcuffed. Got Jesse got Jesse, locked up. Jesse. Jesse Johnson got locked up. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the revolution did that. And they handcuffed him or something? Yeah, they handcuffed him to a closet. Yeah. But he, but he ripped the, like, he couldn't get out of it. Like, it had a handle. Right. And he couldn't get out of it. And he, like, literally ripped the whole handle off the oh, thing. And oh. now the handle became a weapon. Right, right, <laughs> like, right. Like, he right. was running after people. Like, it was just the most crazy thing. And then, you know, the thing afterwards was messed up was basically Prince sent Morris the bill for all the damage, right. for the drum set, for whatever was up at right, the right. hotel. Right. And Morris got, you know, a four or $5,000 bill. You know, for for the thing, and it was like, oh man, that's messed up. So, so during this time, you guys together are starting to produce other people, or you were kind of doing it while you were on the road. There's this famous story of you had to get to San Antonio. You were in Atlanta, and it was a freak snowstorm or something, yeah. and you couldn't get back. And Prince was pissed off. And now, did he, he find you and fire you, or did he just find you there? He he did both, and and I have to go back just just a little bit. What happened with Terry and I was Terry decided at the end of the tour that he was going to go to uh, the end of the second tour because now we're on the, the uh, what time is it tour? Or the, well, it's the 1999 tour. Right. But for us, the what time is it tour? Mm-hmm. And Terry and I had gotten very close. We got on this, we were on the same side of the stage every night. So that was basically our, like our territory and stuff. But we got to know each other really well. And Terry said, hey, I'm going to go, when the tour's over, I'm going to go to LA. And everybody's like, why are you going to do that? And he says, because they need us out there. We're like, okay, cool. And at the time, VCRs were like the big deal, right? So everybody had saved all their money, and everybody's going to buy a VCR, right? And, uh, and they were like, no, Terry, whatever, whatever. I said, hey, I'll go. Terry said, okay, cool. And I said, well, where are we going to stay, Terry? He says, oh, we'll figure it out. I said, well, where are we going to get equipment to do demos? He said, oh, we'll figure it out. And I don't know. I just trusted Terry. I, just, I had that same feeling. I always think about the first time I saw him. Mm-hmm. And I always, whenever he would say something like that, he was like a visionary to me. Yeah, clearly, yeah. And I would just like be like, okay, cool. I'm going to, you know, talk me into getting in the band and the whole thing. We just right. had a history like that. Right. So anyway, I was like, cool. And so we go to L.A. and, and, and we do our thing and do our demos and do, do all of our, our stuff. And that was really the, um, you know, at that point, that's where we decided that, you know, we really wanted to be producers and, you know, and, and, and do all those things. But that was kind of the lead up to that happening. So we go to Atlanta. We meet Clarence Avon. Right. The Godfather. The Godfather. Clarence says, want you to do a couple songs on the SOS band. Because right. we had done a song called High Hopes right. before that. That right. Leon Silver's III produced. And so, um, and Clarence said, okay, cool. You guys, you guys do it. So when we looked at the schedule, we said, well, we got four days off. And we can just go to Atlanta and knock these songs out real quick. Right. So that was the plan. And as we're and literally we do the songs we do actually we we were supposed to do three songs I think but we did two we did just be good to me and we did tell me if you still care classic classic right? so we're driving to the airport and it's beginning to snow but for you know from Minneapolis so right. we're like no yeah. big deal right 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 and it's what in Minneapolis they would call a dusting of snow right? right it's like nothing right we get to the airport and Atlanta airport's the nuttiest airport ever like four big terminals you got to take trains to get to each terminal yeah, yeah. and. Every flight, they shut the airport down. Right. And we're like going, what do you mean the airport shut down? We're trying to book ourselves on every flight. We're just trying to get anything out of Atlanta. Right. And then we were like trying to figure out 
well, maybe we can get to rent a car and drive to an airport that's open somewhere. Right. To, like, we were just losing our minds trying right. to do it because we'd never missed a gig in our life. Right, right, right. I remember the, the, the gig, the cameo gig we were talking about earlier. Terry had gotten a car accident or something before that gig. And you still did the gig? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Came with a big bandage on his head but did the gig. Like, you, the show must go on. It's wow. like, you never miss a gig. So we had never yeah. missed a gig in our life. And it was probably the worst day of our lives. Absolutely missing missing that gig because we had to call people and go, you know, we're we're not going to make the the gig. Right now they figured it out and they did the gig. And of course Prince knew all the parts, so he played bass. And Jerome went and stood in Terry's place and acted like you know he was Terry. And, right. You know, uh, Lisa played keys. Lisa played keys, and yeah, I mean they figured it out. The weirdest thing, by the way, was when we finally did get to San Antonio because we got there after the gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody was going to go out to a club. And they were like, you want to go? And Terry said, no, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to go. And I said, oh, I'll go. So I went. And everybody was coming up telling me how great we were. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, y'all killed it. Right. It was like, and I was going, oh, man, this is messed up. I'm going. <laughs> but Prince thought at that time we had gone to see some girls in right. Atlanta. And so his thought was more, that's what you get for going to see girls. And, right. You know, whatever. It was kind of more of a laughing thing than a mad thing. Right. Um, later on, though, when Billboard magazine came out, with a picture of us in the SOS band. Oh, wow. In Atlanta. So you didn't tell him that you were doing producing on the side? No, because no. he, he told us not to. Yeah. Why? He said, don't produce anything on the side. He said he, did, he didn't want us to give away the time sound, which we said, well, we wouldn't do that. And but he was the one that created the time sound. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but right. we knew it backwards and forwards. Yeah, right. we knew it. We knew right. how to and, do it. And, you know, honestly, a lot of the time sound is based on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But some of it is based on us as well. Right, right. Just right. how we play. Yep. So let's back up a little bit. So when you do go out to L.A. before you get to the S.O.S. band, because you missed the show, but you created the number two song and, the, you know, the rest mm-hmm. is history. Mm-hmm. So you meet um, uh, Dina a- Andrews, mm-hmm. who was at Solar Records, which at the time sounded Los Angeles Records. Yeah. I mean, you know, Shalimar, The Whispers. Yeah. Um, Leon Silvers. Leon right? Silver. You meet Leon Silvers, who was really uh, in that era was such a huge producer. So. Yes. Like, you go from working with Prince, and then you go out on a step of faith to L.A., yep. and you're hanging around Leon, yes. and you meet Dina, yep. who introduces you, who you say you want, can you manage us? Yep. And it's sort of when you created your company. Exactly. And then she connected you with Clarence, who was just starting Taboo Records. So, like, yes. all of this was, like, designed, like, the way it all, one, two, three, totally. four. It totally was. As a matter of fact, we met Leon uh, in a celebrity basketball game. I think it was uh, the Silvers versus KJLH or something. Wow, like, I can't even remember Silvers. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> Underrated group, man. Yeah, oh, <laughs> totally. Totally. Hotline, and, that was my joining. Boogie Fever. Right. Yeah. It was interesting, too, because we loved, we were huge Leon Silvers fans. We were always fans of producers. Right. That was always our thing. And we knew he had produced all those records. And it was interesting because even um, our choice of engineer, Steve Hodge, was because of seeing Steve Hodge's name on all the Leon Silvers records. He mixed every one of those Shalimar, Whispers records, Lakeside records. Steve Hodge mixed all those records. So when we went to su- uh, find an engineer, we were like, we gotta, it's got to be Steve Hodge. Right, and right. it even would say, because you know, the liner notes would say Larrabee Studio. So we even went to Larrabee Studio to track him down and all that kind of stuff. Like it was, all that stuff was there. But the first day that Leon took us to the studio, after the basketball game, we went to the studio called Studio Masters. And Leon was there and some of his guys, but John McClain was also there. Oh, wow. And John McClain, of course, was a person who hooked us up with Janet. So when you talk about kind of divine, you know, timing and all those things, I mean, all of that was into it. But what Leon did is Leon put us in the studio because we had done, you know, we had our little demo tape of stuff, you know, we're doing. But Leon put us in the studio and just said, go at it. And it was like, 
okay, cool. That for us was like, we were literally there. They had back in that day what they called 24-hour lockout. And it was where you had the studio for 24 hours. You right. didn't use it for 24 hours. Right. But it meant that nobody else could come in and change your settings on the board and all that kind of stuff, right? And what was funny was we would go in and we'd work and the engineer would go, hey, what time, how long are you guys going to work? And it's like, we got 24-hour lockout. We're going to be here 24 And he's like, no, it doesn't mm. mean that. And it's like, oh, it does to us. Right, right, We right. got a studio for 24 hours. We're right. using every bit of that 24 hours. I would yeah. sleep. Terry would work. Terry would sleep. I would work. Wow. And it was like, no, we were just start trying to get stuff done. But and, Leon and, was the first person to give us that opportunity. And at that time, that. he was like Midnight Star, Lakeside, yeah. all these big records. Yeah. He was the guy Shalimar. producing. Shalimar. Shalimar. Yeah. yeah. So you, you guys, man, you, you had so many good people to be around. You were sort of like an eclectic mix of all of these great producers. And then you take it to the next level, of and course. It, and it was great because Prince, you know, his way of doing things was very spontaneous, very... Whatever it was, 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 and you were done in one day, you were done with a song start to finish. Right. Leon was very meticulous, particularly with vocals. I mean, he's the one that really taught us how to produce vocals. And he told us when we, because we would do tracks, and then we'd go in and do the vocals, and the vocals we think would sound pretty good. And he'd go, I'm going to go, I'm going to teach you guys how to do vocals, because you're not really a producer until you can do vocals. And then he'd go in and do vocals, and we'd be going, Wait, that's the same people we were just working with because we couldn't get the vocals to sound like that. Right. But we watched how meticulous he was about every little note and every syllable and every timing and every little thing. He would punch in and out, you know, into record and out of record, like just to pick up one breath. Hmm. And by the time it was done, it was just beautiful thing. And so all of those things, yeah, they, it totally informed the way we ended up producing it was great the best teachers you could possibly have and then in that time though you had done a song or a couple songs for change which was a really a good group at the time right so Mm -hmm. you you dabbled a little bit because i know just be good just be good to me was like a huge record but you know you dabbled a little bit and i had i went back and listened to the songs because i kind of knew the songs but i didn't understand know that you guys did it and Mm -hmm. i totally hear it when i listen to the songs like oh my god i can hear your sound early on Mm -hmm. in in those change records. But let's get to Just Be Good To Me because it was such, again, one of these records, it's like the intro is 48 seconds. I just love that, the way way it started. And it was that TR-808 sound, the the way that you did, it was nothing like we've ever heard before on the radio. And I didn't know anything about who was producing it, but I remember that song because everybody remembers uh, Take Your Time, Do It Right because that was their big first song. Absolutely. And you like, the work that you did with them, my favorite, all-time favorite SOS band song that you produce is Tell Me If You Still, still Care, care. Uh-huh. and runner-up is Weekend Girl. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Just the way it y'all, like, I fell in love with your sound through the SOS band. Mm-hmm. So then you get the SOS band. That song is just like the, one of the biggest songs that year. I mean, R&B. So I'm sure you got everybody's attention on that. Everybody was like, ding, ding, ding. Mm-hmm. Who are these guys? Another song that I didn't know that you guys did was you used to hold me tight from Delma Houston. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, thinking about her, right, she was like the disco queen seven years earlier. That's who she was, and you give her life. I listened to that one again. I was like, oh, like I, I'm totally hearing you formulate this sound. What was it like working with um, somebody? When somebody says to you, all right, well, we want you to do a song with her, and you just think of her big uh, disco record, and then you get in the studio with her. What was that like? <laughs> well... You know, the, the one thing I would say is that the best part of being a producer for us has always been elevating the artist to a level. And we 
kind of got into very much a mode of with SOS band because Take Your Time Do It Right was so big, but they never were able to follow it up. Right. But we could look at the ingredients of that Take Your Time Do It Right, the repetitious bass, you know, the glockenspiel bells, all of those types of things, those ingredients, Mm -hmm. and then write a new song just for them based on those things. And that's what Just Be Good To Me was. Right. With Change, it was the same way. They had Glow of Love. They had those records. They had a song called Paradise that we really loved. And we were like, okay, it's sophisticated, it's funky, but it's very sophisticated. Kind of like chic to me was what it was always like, very European sounding. And we went to Italy to do the Change record. You know, we did that record in Italy. So it was just kind of taking what the ingredients were there and just cooking them. Like, you guys got the right ingredients. We're just going to do what we, as Change fans, this is the record we want to do. As SOS fans, this is the record we want to do. Thelma Houston, same way. People, I don't know whether counted her out would be the term, but... Nobody was really thinking about her, but we just knew she could sing her ass. Well, she could, yeah, she's a singer. Right? We, she was a singer. So when we got in the studio with her, we were like, oh, my God. And so it was like, no, let's come up with some, something that's funky, but it's got to be a dance record because she has a dance audience. And Used to Hold Me So Tight was the record. Right. The other thing about Used to Hold Me So Tight was that was when we had moved back to Minneapolis. And there was a whole different... Um, creative uh, energy that was happening there because mm-hmm. um, we did that in that basement studio that I was talking to you about. Mm-hmm. That's where we did used to hold me so tight. So it was very comfortable to bring people in and because you weren't watching the clock paying you know, thousands of dollars you know, for the studio time, you could go in there and really talk to the people, right. figure out what it was they wanted to sing about, what they right. wanted. You not, know. not pressured. There was no pressure. Right. So it, was just, it got to be very creative and, and cool. Another big song you did during that time was Encore, Cheryl Lynn. Ooh, man. Ooh, that was a monster, Ooh, dude. I agree. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> that is like a... That is, the, that is the Terry Lewis funky bass line of all time. That, that intro, record. though? Oh, yeah, right? Oh, <laughs> man. You set it off. Another sidebar song from SOS Band is No One's Gonna Love You. That was a that's my, song, That's man. my one. I love, I love that record. Those songs are timeless. I was, talking to, I was talking to Maxwell about that record. Well, two people. I was talking to Maxwell about that record because he did a remix. He did a remix to that. He totally just took the record and just sang over it. Right, right, right. And uh, he's, we, we love him. Was that him, something, something? Loves us. something? No, it, no, it was, um, oh, shoot. It was a remix was of one of his songs, yes, right? Yes, it was, um, oh, my God. Don't Ever Wonder. Don't Ever Wonder. Don't Ever Wonder. Which was a great original yeah, song. Yeah, it was a great original song. Yeah. But he flipped that remix, man, and he just took the record. and just, He didn't change a thing. Mm-hmm. And he talks about that when we talk. He, that's like one of his all-time favorite records, and he was happy to be able to do that. But we were actually talking to, um, I think it was Sean from Boys to Men recently, and he was talking about No One's Gonna Love You, how it has this one note that just holds the whole time. Yeah. And he was like, Man, how, how did you know whatever, whatever? And I'm like, I don't know how we knew to do it. It just was the feel of the song. But we always, for us, that was but that you, was always the record. For but us. your music was hypnotic, though. It was just it. You figured out a way to like. You were like the Pied Piper of it because you just it, it caught you, yeah. and those grooves like caught you. Like I can, I get excited whenever I hear the song. You yeah. can't say that for everybody that has a song, right? So another song you did dur- you. during that time was when you started working with Alexander O'Neill, and <laughs> what's missing is my favorite Alexander O'Neill song. Oh, yeah. really? oh yeah. my yeah, god, that's a, that's a great song. That's a good one. I, yes. I agree with you. He used to sing the song like oh, yes. you felt every emotional aspect of him. And Sunshine, dude, Sunshine. Mm-hmm. Well, Man. Alex was interesting because Alex, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. when we talked about the singers, we used to, you know, Cynthia Johnson, obviously, right. lip sync. 
but Alexander O'Neill. So when Alexander O'Neill basically kind of talked himself out of being in the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he, we said to Alex, man, if we ever make it, we're going to come back and grab you. Yeah. And the opportunity came up because there was a singer that Clarence had put us in the studio with. And we had the tracks. We had, right. you know, uh, if you were here tonight, do, oh do you want to like God. I do? We if had, you were here tonight? Yeah, those, so- those tracks were done. The songs were done. This dude huh. came in to sing them, and he wasn't really pulling it off. And we called Clarence, and we said, hey, Clarence, the dude you sent up, man, he ain't quite got it. Right. But I said, there's a dude up here. Can we put him on it? And he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, you know, whatever. And we went and grabbed uh, Alex. He was playing a club in St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And we went and grabbed Alex, and we just said, hey, man, can you come and sing on these records real quick and whatever? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. So when he comes over, I don't know, 2 in the morning, whatever, and does these records. We send them to Clarence. He Clarence must have fell out of his up, chair. Clarence calls up and he goes, man, who's this motherfucker? And he's like, <laughs> right. oh, this is a, Alexander O'Neill. His voice. He said, O'Neill? What is he, Irish or something? And I said, no, he's, he's a black man. Hey, what kind of name is O'Neill for a black man? I said, right. hey, I don't know. But, you know, whatever. And then, uh, anyway, he says, well, get that motherfucker out of L.A. So it's right. like we go to L.A. and he meets him. And he just, he signs him on the spot. And then we, and then we finish the record. Sunshine, no, man. Just the beginning of that song is just hypnotic. Just the way you stu- you lull us into it. And I was telling you, I, I, I did a podcast with Kenny Gamble, and, and we talked about, like, setting up a song. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're intro records for, you know, your life, that's what you do. It's nothing like a great intro. And the way that that song, and it, it's just, man, and the way he sung over it, and the way the song ends, mm-hmm. Alexander O'Neill, dude, like, that was just, whew. Alex was amazing. Man. Soulful, soulful, soulful guy. A, bro- a broken heart can mend. Yeah, oh, but he man. could. But he could. Um, by the way, the ba- did you ever see the broken heart can mend video? Yes. So that's the bass right there. Oh wow! Can't see it on the radio, but anyway. Wow. <laughs> we're looking, he's looking at the Alexander O'Neill broken heart can mend bass, but that's it. That's one from. from the so, video. so all this energy is happening around you guys, and then there was a, a British band, the Human League. And they had had a big, big song, Don't You Want Me, which, you know, was huge. Huge. You go and bring them to Minneapolis to record I'm Only Human Mm -hmm. or Human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was like a worldwide, like, smash. What was that like? Because I I read somewhere that you all was like a culture shock. You, these dudes from Minneapolis and then these dudes from, from England. And you bring them together. I mean, what an amazing song you created for them that ends up being like, you know, timeless and one of the biggest songs in the world at the time. And that, that was probably your first big global record, right? It was good. And, you know, and, and John McClain, I'll mention his name again, who hooked us up with Janet, was also the person that hooked us up with Human League. Mm-hmm. He said uh, they were looking to do a record and the record they were trying to do sounded like us. Like they were trying to do a Jam and Lewis sounding record, right? And he was like, "Well, just get Jam and Lewis to do it," you know? right, right, right. And uh, so it was cool, but yeah, it was definitely a culture shock, kind of on both sides. I think of it, <laughs> definitely. Uh, probably more for them though, coming to Minnesota in the cold, and I think it was winter time. I think they were here and, mm-hmm. or there, and it was yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. But we enjoyed the process. Human was interesting because there there was a well, I don't know the controversy is the word, but. It was one of the few times that we had a record. We had basically finished a record. And Terry, I will say, I call Terry vocal master. Because if you think about the way Phil Oakey had sung on, who was the lead singer of Human League, had sung on all the records. Right. There was no really humanity in his singing. He might as well have been sort of a machine. It was all this very kind of, ha, 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 it was all very right. And all of a sudden on Human, he's singing with all this you know, humanity, for right. lack of a better term. And it was softer. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Terry was the one that got that vocal, but it took like a week right. to get that vocal. He like Terry literally had to teach him how to sing it, but then get him to not think about singing like that, but just right. So he does the vocal, and then the backgrounds on the song was Terry and a girl named Lisa Keith. Right. And so when we played the song for them, the girls in the group go. Who's that other girl singing right, on the right, track? <laughs> right, because they didn't fit when you tried to do it with them. No, right? it didn't. No, it yeah. didn't work. And we right. were like, no, but no, she's she's a background singer, Lisa Keith. We use her on all our stuff. Now we don't know whether we like that or not. Blah blah blah. Oh lord. So the next day, we come to the studio, and Phil walks in. Now Phil is seeing one of the girls, right? Is his girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. And he walks in the studio, and he's got this weird look on his face. And we say, "What's up, Phil?" He goes, "I just have to say." We don't like that other girl singing on the track. <laughs> and we looked at him and we said, what? And he said, I just have to say, we don't like that other girl singing on the track. And we looked at him again and we're like, huh? I just have to say. And we said, oh, you just, just have, to, have say. to say. Right, right, right. <laughs> we right. don't like the other girl on the track. And he yeah. goes, yes, I just have, have to, to say. say. We said, we got it. Right, 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 right. And so we called, <laughs> so we called at Virgin Records at the time, because it was A&M in America, but I think it was right. Virgin Overseas or whatever, and we right. called the people at Virgin. And we said, here's the deal with a song. We got a song we think is cool. We want to finish it the way we want to finish it, but if, we, if we're not allowed to finish it the way we want to finish it, we're just pulling the record. Right. We'll just pull it. Right. And we sent them the record, and they were like, oh, my God, no. Right. No, no, it's right, it just, right, you know, whatever. Right, right. The genius thing that Terry came up with then was, and one of the greatest lyrics of all time to me, was he put the girl on the record doing the speaking part while we were apart, I was human too, which was like the ultimate, oh my God, that is so good. So then they were happy because they got Look to actually you. You be visionary, boy. You found a solution. I'll tell you, Terry, Terry's the... <laughs> Gotta be a solution. Terry's yeah. the genius. <laughs> But, but no, it is. That's what it is. It's, it, and, and think about just the art of production. It is really about finding solutions. Right. And sometimes it's technical solutions you're looking for. Sometimes it's you know, musical solutions. Sometimes somebody it doesn't have it, but it's like, let's go to the house and Terry used to have Cedus at his house. Let's go to the house and ride the Cedus. Or let's have a barbecue. Or, or let's go to the ball game. Or let's, you know, whatever those things are. It's almost like being a psychiatrist, a psychologist, all of those things. But at the end of the day, it's just getting it done in the best way you can. As Prince says, choices. Choices. So during this time, you guys connect with Janet Jackson. Now, up mm-hmm. until the Control album, you know, we had Dream Street and it was another album. She had had one song, Young Love, that actually kind of hit on the radio. Mm-hmm. But she had never had any big success. And she was... Doing the same thing that Michael was doing, you know, when Michael cut dad off, you know, he ascended into superstardom. And so she cuts dad off and gets with you guys and comes to Minneapolis. Talk to us about recording Control, which would go on to sell 10 million copies and put Janet Jackson and put you guys on a on a level like unheard of at the time. So talk a little bit about meeting her and coming up with that classic album. Well, Janet was a big fan at the time and she actually came to our shows, which was kind of cool. Wow. And, um, and then she had worked with Leon Silvers, and so we had a chance to meet her in the studio with Leon. Um, so we kind of already knew each other a little bit, but John McClain had someone else for us to produce at A&M, and that artist decided that she didn't want to work with us. And so he apologized. He said, man, I'm really sorry about that, but um, can I, uh, is there anybody else on the roster who you think you'd like to, to do? We said, send us the roster. So we sent the roster, and Terry and I looked at the roster, and we went down right to Janet's name, 
And we said, Janet, we'll do Janet. Right. And he said, well, you want to do two or three songs? And we said, no, we want to do the whole album. He's like, you do? I was like, yeah. Because in our minds, we knew it's all about inspiration, right? It's all, do people inspire you? Like when if somebody would say the name of somebody, like in the, or we already said, you know, SOS band, Cheryl Lynn, whatever. It's right. like if, if a song immediately pops in our head, like, oh, we got this. We, we got this. With Janet, it was like, oh, we got, oh, yeah, we know exactly what to do. Because what, to me, what was missing, it wasn't that she could, we knew she could sing. But what happened was the first two albums she did, two things. One was, it wasn't really her choice to do those albums. Right. It was the dad, yep. you know. Yep. And that was part of it. The other part of it was when Janet was young, she had all this, I call it feistiness, right? Mm-hmm. She had all this attitude and feistiness, right? Mm-hmm. And none of that was apparent in those albums. Right. So we were like, if we could give her tracks that have that feistiness and then she can sing and get that back, mm-hmm. we thought that was the magic thing. And, but we knew we had to do that in Minneapolis. We couldn't right. do that you in couldn't LA. You couldn't do that in LA, no. And so we had our, we built our studio now at this point. We're out of the basement studio. We're in our own flight time studio now. And so we had her come to town. And it was interesting, too. The one, one person we didn't mention, I'll mention, is Patty Austin we worked with. Okay. And we did a song called Heat of Heat, which was yeah. a big hit for Patty Austin. Yep. But that song was a very kind of sophisticated, you know, we had strings, we had everything. We're doing it for Quincy Jones. It's like, no, we got we to gotta step <laughs> yeah, it up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we got to do it right. Yeah. So wow. anyway, Janet, I remember her hearing that song and going, oh, I, I don't know whether I really want my record to sound like that. And we said, no, no, no. Your sound's going to be totally different. Because that was our whole thing, is give everybody their own mm-hmm. sound. Mm-hmm. We said, no, it's going to be totally different. It's going to be what it is. When Janet got, came to town, it was just her and a, a girlfriend of hers, and we just rode around, went to the lake, went to the club. You know, We just hung around. We never went to the studio. And after about four or five days of that, but we talked. And after about four or five days of that, she said, when are we going to go to work? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the lyrics to what ended up becoming control. Right. And she looked at the lyrics and she said, oh my God, this is what we've been talking about. And we said, yeah. And she said, so wait, whatever we talk about, that's what we're going to write about? Yes. And it was like a light bulb went off. And right. It was like, oh my God. Well, then I want to, did you see that guy at the club? It was, he was nasty. I don't want to, I don't like nasty. Right. But okay, great. Let's write it. Right, you know? right, right. And that was the kind of the revelatory moment for her where she became creative. And I always say, the difference was we just ask her her opinion <laughs> and let her tell her story and then put the music background to but it. But did you recognize how special this project was as you were recording it? Like, did you feel like this something here? We, we're, we're creating something here that's special because the songs were unlike anything else out at the time. Where we lived when we were in L.A., we lived uh, uh, on Cadillac and Corning, right, mm-hmm. which isn't. It ain't the hood hood, but it ain't, you know. It's the good. It's right. the good. It's the good. It's the good. Like good. It. <laughs> and, and, and what I remember from living there is whenever you'd go down the street, there was music blasting out of everybody's house. Right. In that. And you knew you had a hit or it sounded like right, a hit right, right. if it was blasting out of everybody's house. Right. We made the control record with that neighborhood in mind. Okay. We said, if we can have the record that everybody's blasting out their house when you go into the soul food restaurant, when you go into the, you know, the store, the grocery store, whatever... That's the record we want to make. And yeah. that, for us, was what Control was. Right. So we thought, yes, we successfully did that. We had no idea of the impact it was going to have. But John McClain did. Right. Because John McClain, when he came up and listened to the record, and a and, and little story here, he comes up, we play him the record. And we play him Control, Nasty, When I Think of You, Funny How Time Flies, uh, 
Let's Wait a While, Pleasure Principle. We play him all these records, and we're like, what do you think? And like all A&R people, he goes, it's great. I just need one more. Like, what are you talking about one more? Just, Come on, man. We got, we're good, man. So he was a visionary, too. He was a visionary, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So I just need one more. Right. So we said, now nah, forget that, John. So we go riding around in the car. We said, let us play you our album. Right. Right? Because me and Terry were working on our Jam and Lewis album. Right? Got it. So we play him tracks about the third track in. He goes, that's the one I need for Janet. And we're like, what are you talking about, man? He says, no, no, that's the one I need for Janet. I'm like, oh, man. He says, well, play it for her. And if she likes it, she can have it. I'm like, okay, whatever. Right. Right. So we go to the studio the next day. We put the track on. We don't tell her we're putting it on. We just put it on. We watch her. She's on the couch watching TV. She kind of puts her head down. She comes to the doorway. She leans. She points at the speakers, and she points at us. And then it goes off, and she said, who's that for? And we said, well, you if you want it. And she said, oh, I want it. That song ended up, what have you done for me lately? Wow. So John was right. That was our first single, and that's the first view of the people got of the control. And and you know what? It was a great reintroduction of Janet Jackson. I mean, we knew her as Penny on Good Times and... You know, when she was playing Mae West as a kid on the the re, the, the show that they did. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, we yeah, did, on the variety show yeah. and stuff. And, on Carol and, and she's on and different strokes. And so, like, all yeah. of a sudden, it's like, whoa. But right. I got to tell you, man, I'll tell a story that I've heard after this. The one song on that album that, like, blew me away was When I Think of You. Mm. Just still to this day, like, whenever that song comes on, it's just, again, a great intro and it just goes so hard. Like, I almost feel like, man, these guys, y'all rappers or something? Like, <laughs> it was just like, you could not deny that record. Well, it's interesting because one of the things we always thought about, the kind of music we were giving her, if you think about the way radio was for black females at that time, it yep. was very soft. It was Anita Baker, it was Patty, Patty uh, uh, LaBelle, so on and so forth. Yeah. And there was all these kind of soft records. The tracks we were giving her are tracks that were more thought of as like what a male would be over, either right. rapping over right. or singing over. And hip-hop was ascending at that time. Yes, it was. Too. Absolutely right. On black radio. Yes. Yeah. But our thing was we thought she had the attitude to pull it off. If we gave her aggressive tracks, we thought that vocally she could have matched those tracks. Right. So that was a big deal to us to, to kind of do that. You know, that, that, that was important. And, and it was great because even like a song like Nasty, when we did Nasty and she went in to start singing it, she started singing it high. She was like, sit in the movie, like in her voice. Right, right. And we're like, no, no, no. Sing it like an octave lower. Can you do that? And she goes, in the movie. Ooh, I'm not sure about that. And I said, no, no, no. That's going to be cool, though. Just try it. Just try it. Right. And there got to be a trust amongst us where she would just be like, okay, cool. You want me to sing it low? Okay, cool. And she would do it. But with all this attitude. And now you match that up with the track. And all of a sudden, it's, you've got something that sonically is just totally different. Wow. When I Think of You is interesting because I remember we went and played the album for her, the, her brothers. Her brothers. This is, that's the story I heard. Okay. You, yeah. And, and they had, this was their first time just hearing anything, anything from her. And they're just thinking of the Janet that before, Dream yes. Street Janet. Yes. So what was that like, you going in and <laughs> when you played When I Think of You, what happened? So we played, all the, we played all the songs. I don't even know whether we played them in order. I'm trying right. to think. I don't even know whether we had assembled the album at that point. But I know we, had, we were playing all the songs and stuff. And they were like, oh, it sounds really good. Oh, that's real. Jam, we're so proud of you, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember when I Think of You came on. And I remember, I think it was maybe Marlon or somebody said, wow, that's, what is that? And it's like, when I Think of You. They said, that's, you know what, that, that's going to be a number one record. Yeah. That's going to be the biggest one from the record. And on yeah. our minds, it's like, no way. Right. We got Lately, Nasty, Control, right, right. Pleasure Principle. It's like, yeah, no yeah. way. Yeah. He's, and they were like, no, no, what do you think? And then, Let's wait a all while. Of them, Let's right. wait a while, dude. Like, it, it all was of them just, agreed, though. Yeah. All of them agreed. They yeah. said, yeah, when I think of you, that's, that's, that, that's the one. Right. 
And we're like, what? <laughs> and of course, they were right because that was our ended up being our first number one pop pop record. Record. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah. were absolutely right. Janet, of course, it's just the rest is history. It's ten million sold. It's a big album. Then you come back three years later with Rhythm Nation, which again, your your sound was prevalent, but it was different from control it was just another the energy i was telling you all before we started the interview i remember i was i was in uh, you know just a young pup in radio and behind the scenes i wasn't even on the air yet and i remember the 911 of miss you much like mm-hmm. you know it was like janet's coming out miss you much was an okay record but it wasn't like the rest of that album i mean you guys just amped it up to the next level and we all know how tough it is when an artist has a huge success out the box. That second album is like, oh my God, how do I top it? And you guys topped it. So talk about the creative process on Rhythm Nation after coming off of Control. How did you deliver another massive album for her? Well, the one thing I'll say is that we had already been through the process of delivering because we had done, you know, SOS Band, which was huge. And had to follow that up and came with Just the Way You Like It and right. and Weekend Girl. Mm-hmm. So we already had been through sort of the follow-up record right. uh, you know, th- thing. You know, mm-hmm. We had done it with Alexander O'Neill. We had followed that, you know, the first record up with Hearsay right. and so on and so forth. So we didn't really feel any pressure. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other thing about it was that um, we were working in Minneapolis, so there was nobody telling us what to do. There was a, everybody had an idea. It should be Control Two. Right. It should be a record called Scandal about her family. It should be what everybody oh had God. their own idea. <laughs> yeah. No, everybody had their idea. You know, oh my I mean, because everybody left us alone the first time. Right, so we right. basically just sequ- once again sequestered ourselves in, in Minneapolis and just make, made the album. And Miss You Much was actually the first track that we did. And when she walked in and heard it and got a big smile on her face and I pointed it to a note at the keyboard and she just hit it and it became like the string part on the, on the chorus of the song but th- we were off and running at that point now right. we didn't know it was going to be Rhythm Nation right? but we just knew that she was excited about she came in with a ton of ideas of, you know, she knew I want to write about this I want to talk about this and that was different now, her confidence level was at a, a all time different level than the first time First time, it was like a kind of a learning process. This album, she came in and was had ideas and was like, let's go. Let's so, write. So the, so the big song for me on that album was Escapade. Again, just <laughs> that intro. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard it, it was like, Whoa, what? What is this? <laughs> I remember not even getting through the whole song, just rewinding it to the to beginning, just the yeah. way it started out nice and mm-hmm. soft, and then you just like punch you in the face with the, the way the beat comes in, yeah. and it was that Minneapolis sound. Yeah. It was a very simple way of singing the song, mm-hmm. but that track uh, was just so amazing. By um, the way, so Escapade is interesting because, first of all, the dynamics of starting soft and going hard and that. We love doing that kind of stuff. We love dynamics. We talk about that all the time. But Escapade was interesting because she just said, I want to do a song that like, you know, if they play it at a basketball game or something and everybody is up dancing and I just want that kind of energy on a, on a song. And it's like, right. okay, cool. So we, when we did the track, we did it really fast. Like literally, uh, well, I, you know, Prince, I used both hands. I did the bass on one hand. I did the key, uh, keyboard part on another hand. Same track. Same, all on the same track. And then all the drums are all on one track. It was the SP-1200 drum machine that we had just gotten. And everything's on like two, three tracks. And that's it. And, the, and then the idea was we would always go back and redo it. But it was, like good, it was like, is it good enough for you to sing to? Or first to write to? She said, yeah. And then I said, okay, cool. So she goes and sings the record. The whole record's good. And we keep thinking, okay, we're going to go back and redo it. We're going to go back and redo it. And we never did. 
So basically what you hear, like, on the tracks is all basically on three or four tracks. Wow. And I remember we sent it out for people to remix and they were like, no, you sent us the wrong thing. There's, there's just three tracks on here. It's like, no, that's, no, that's all there it. is. That, yeah. that is what it is. You know, and, and it was, it was kind of funny, but I was, I was thinking the, uh, the other day too, that, um, the interesting thing about Escapade was that was one of the songs when John McClain came up to listen to the album, that was the song he didn't like. And wow. that was the song that at that time was probably Janet's favorite song because she, you know, really had come up with the whole concept and the whole idea. And the of video what it was. was amazing too. Yeah. yeah, and and it was really interesting. And I remember saying to John at the time, "Hey, man, that's Janet's song, man. You know, yeah. whatever." And he's, "Oh, she understands. She understands." I'm like, "No, no. we understand yeah, because yeah, yeah. she talks shit about us all the time." Right, but, right, right. <laughs> you know, she for her the writing thing was still new and exciting and whatever. And it was it was interesting, but. Uh, yeah, he never liked that song, but we loved it, and we always thought, "No, this is kind of cool." And we loved, and we also love just being back with her in Minneapolis a few weeks ago. We actually thirty years with her. celebrating yeah. thirty years of that album. Celebrating thirty years. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, when she says Minneapolis in Minneapolis. the middle of escapade, yeah, that meant so much. But it was such a shout out to, you know, not only our hometown but her creative hometown, right? You know, where all those records were made. And, that city changed her life. Yes. Yeah. And she acknowledged that actually on stage, which was very cool um, at that show. So on that album, two songs that just, I mean, Escapade, I loved Escapade, but there's two records that just, again, timeless to me. First one is Love Will Never Do Without You. And just the way that you start that song, nice and soft, like a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it was like, it was all choreographed perfect and it just stops. Uh, and then Come Back to Me. Mm. Beautiful record. The way you guys just know how to make like a really soft mid-tempo or a soft ballad. Even going back to Alexander O'Neill, the SOS band, you know, you guys may have these big tempo records, but those mid-tempo ballad ones, man, are really special. Tell, tell a little bit about just putting songs like that together. Where, where do they come from, from within you? <laughs> well, when Terry and I first met, or when we first started writing songs together. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting thing because I grew up listening to basically pop music in, in Minneapolis. And I was into like Seals and Crofts in America and very harmonized pop. Because you guys didn't have stuff. a black radio station there. No. Yeah. No. And when I met Terry, Terry was one. I remember when we met, the year we met, I think the Chicago 6 album was coming out. And I mm-hmm. was all excited about the Chicago 6 album. And Terry was like, Chicago 6? No, oh, man. P-Funk, man, George, Parliament Funkadelic. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, you know, New, New Birth, Earth, Wind, and yeah. Fire, uh, Tower of Power. Like, like, and so he was the one that turned me on all those records. I never had heard those records in my life. So when we got together to write, what would happen is a lot of times Terry would come up with some funky bass line. And then I'd put this little melody over the top, all pretty and stuff, and it'd be like, oh, no, that ain't working. <laughs> or, I'd come up, or I'd come up with a nice little melodic thing, and then Terry would put this boom, boom, put this bass on it. Right. And be like, oh, man. And the first time we really, to me, found our footing of where that balance was, was really just be good to me. If you think about the bass on that song, mm-hmm. which is boom, boom, as funky right. as it could be. Right, right. But then the chords over the top, clean. So you guys found a balance clean. between we found both it. sides. Yeah. Well, I actually think it probably was um, Can You Treat Me Like She Does, actually. Oh, that's true. Real to real. real yeah, to nobody real. knows that. Nobody record. knows that. Yeah. I yeah. know that song. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That is true. Yeah. Because uh, it had that, that line, that, that them chords, those eerie chords yeah. underneath it. She was on Taboo too, right? Real to Real? Yeah. No, no, it, was no. A, it was a group. It was, group. They, were on, they were on Arista. It was actually, Arista, okay. I remember, uh, this, I remember the so group. So Leon Silvers. Leon Silvers. Group. Okay, got Leon it. Leon Silvers group. 
And uh, he heard that was one of the songs he heard on our, when we did our demo. Like he heard, like there was, I don't know, maybe eight, nine songs on the demo. Mm-hmm. He heard that and that was the one for him. He was like, yeah, can you treat me like she does? I got this group. We're, that's the one. Right. And we did that one on a song called Don't Keep Me Hanging On for yeah. that. Yeah. And I think we did the only one was the on that demo too, which that, ended up sure. on Dynasty, which was his group. Right. So those songs ended up there. We had another song on there, Wild Girls, that ended up going to Climax. Um, I think Just Be Good to Me was on that demo. Uh, I mean, it was like our songs were all there. You well, know? And, and different and people heard different songs that they liked. And also at that time, you did Love is a House from the Force MDs. We didn't do that no. song. You didn't? No. That's they, not your music? No, no, they totally, they totally, no. <laughs> they, what they, they gangstered it. Yeah, they gangstered it. Oh, I thought that was you. <laughs> no. No, they gangstered wow, it. Wow, they took we your did, sound. We did Tender Love. Ten, tender I know love. you did Tender yeah. Love, but I, I just... Knew that you did that one because That's it what, sounded, but that was the that was the intent. Wow, and that was fine. Yeah, because yeah. for for us, once again, it was about giving everybody a different sound. So the sound we would give to one person, you could copy that, but we'd go to the next person. When we first did "Just Be Good to Me," everybody came to us and said, "Man, give me one of those." Right, and we'd be like, "No, we'll give you something different, but it'll be cool." And then we did encore. And then people go, "Oh, give me one of those," and then we go, "No, but we'll do something different. We go and do Alexander O'Neill or whatever." And that was the thing. But then when SOS came back around again, then it's like record company said, man, give us something like just be good to me. And we're like, okay, just the way you like it. Okay, cool. Right, we, right, we, right, we'll right, right. And for us, we, we always, just our overall philosophy, and it goes back to, we were just in Minneapolis and just saw him, but there was a, a writer back there named John Bream. And I think he's the longest tenured writing person for a, a music mm-hmm. uh, thing. And um, we reminded him all the time that when he first interviewed us, back in, I don't know, 84, probably, 83. And he said, man, you guys are the hottest producers. And we said, mm, we don't really want to be the hottest producers. We just want to be warm for a long time. Right, right. And that's always been our philosophy. And part of that philosophy was giving everybody their own sound. So we didn't burn out on one thing. It was like, if you listen to, you know, whatever, whoever it is, Mary J. Blige, it sounds like Mary J. Blige. It's like, we're going to do you, you know, we're not going to, it ain't the Jam and Lewis sound being right. injected on you. It's like, you tell us what you want, and then we'll do it. The best compliment we ever got, well, we got it from a few people, but who said it the best Barry. was Barry White. Wow. Barry White, we, we did a couple songs with Barry White, and we played him one of the songs, and I think I might have done the, vo- the demo vocal on it, because I used to do it. We used to call it blackmail vocals all the time. And we did the vocal, and I said, um, you know, I'm on there, oh, 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 trying to sing like him. And when the song went off, he just laughed. And we said... Well, what do you think? And he said, sounds like me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, great. Right, and that's right. what you always want. You right, want the artist right. to always feel like it sounds like them. So. Oh, yeah, I forgot the record. So hmm. I can't stand it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, like, Terry, you digging out the, yeah, the, the cool. ones. Yeah. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. How about that one? Do you know, are you familiar with that? From Barry White? No, no I no. can't stand it. So it was. Um, we're talking about where, where the funk met the chords. Yeah, where? Yeah, where? What, what's the artist? The artist, um, uh, Kimberly. Well, Kimberly Ball, Ball sang it, it um, but she wasn't the artist. No, she wasn't the artist. Um, it wasn't Ice T. It was Captain Rap. Captain Rap. Captain okay. Rap. I gotta look that one up. Okay, you gotta look that one up. This is the all-time thing, and this is when Terry and I first came to L.A., and we were in the studio, 
And dude had this track, and he was just, and they said, "Oh, we'll give you five hundred dollars come into the studio." I'm like five hundred dollars, cool. We're like, hey, yeah, happy. Yeah. We were like happy. We were like, oh, this is before you. This is before. This is before. Shit. This right. is yeah. we could buy a couple weeks of chicken, right? Because y'all went, y'all went, y'all went out there with no place to stay. So five hundred dollars. Yeah, no, we're like five hundred dollars. Oh no, we're cool. Right. We're not. We're making nothing from the time. I mean, my my time check was one hundred and seventeen dollars a week after. With them big hits. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. We had gold records, but we <laughs> didn't you not didn't much have else. gold in your pockets. No. Yeah, couldn't wash your clothes. Nope. Wow. Nope. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so they gave us $500. We were like, okay, yeah, cool. What, what, do you, what do you got? And they said they had this track, and it was all kind of one nothing happening. And we went in with the, you know, with the OB-8 and the, and the Lindrum and whatever. We put the little beat and did our little thing to it. And we heard it like we took our money and, and got out of there. And then, uh, you know, I don't know, a month later, we heard it on the radio and they had like the dude that was rapping on it. They right. had kind of like taken him off, like totally. Right. And it was just this girl singing, "I can't stand it. You can't stand it. Is this the way I pants planned it?" And next time, every club we went to, it wow. was like the anthem. Oh yeah. Oh, I gotta look that. And up. our name and our names were on it, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. It was like okay. Wow. You know, and we never saw royalty from it or nothing. But you know, it was Not good. But penny. we got but we got our five hundred bucks, so it was all good. But it was like those kind of moments, like, you know, just being able to go to the studio and do that kind of stuff. There's another record with Ice-T we did called Cold Wind Madness. Yeah, it was same session. Same session. Wow. Same session. So <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you got to do a little digging. But oh, those yeah, songs I, I, are out there. You, those you, songs are out there. You'll, you'll love When you hear I Can't Stand It. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't it wait. Your mind. It's so good. Today. It's so good. So as you change Janet Jackson's life and career, you changed New Edition's life and career in 1988 with the Any Heartbreak album. I'm the same age as New Edition. I remember them coming out. I remember just the energy that they had. I remember Bobby Brown leaving, and it was like, oh, the group is finished because Bobby left. And then Bobby blows Mm -hmm. like he's a rock star. Mm -hmm. And then here they come to you for this album. They added Johnny Gill. That was probably weird, right? Because it's just, you know. And then you bring them all to Minneapolis, and you deliver the Any Heartbreak album. Wow. That was just the greatest new edition album ever. So the backstory on that was that Johnny Gill, when Gerald Busby was actually the um, president of uh, MCA at the time, and he was looking for, or actually he was Motown. He had moved to Motown at that point, I think. And he was looking for acts for the label. And he called us and he said, who do you think is like a really good male singer who we could bring in? And he had some other people in mind. Right. And we looked at him, and we just said, what about Johnny Gill? And he said, Johnny Gill? And we said, yeah. And he said, well, what's he sound like? And I said, well, Johnny sounds, he sounds like he's always sound. The difference is now he's actually a man. I said, right. he's had that voice when he was 13, 14 years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah, I said, but now he's, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I said, you know, now he's grown into his voice. And he said, if I sound Johnny Gill, will you guys do the album? And we said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, okay, cool. So that's how Johnny got in the circle of New Edition. Mm-hmm. And then I remember we were at a concert, and I don't remember who it was, but we were at a concert, and uh, Biv, I think, or somebody came up and said, yeah, you know, Johnny's going to be in the group or whatever. Like, nobody told us, right? And we were like, what? And you were already working with him. We, 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 didn't, we were getting ready. We hadn't started on Johnny's record yet. Right, right. But they said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to do a record, you know, and he's going to join the group. What do you think about putting him in the group? And I'm like thinking, well, that's cool. Yeah, they were already in Minneapolis, actually. Yeah. The new edition was. We were actually working with them at the time. Because we did Helplessly in Love. Exactly. Right, that's right, for the for the Dragnet soundtrack before was Johnny was with too. the group. 
Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's yeah. one of Bruno Mars's favorite songs, by the way. Help us see in love. <laughs> yeah, he said it at the piano and played it. Reminds before. me of Tender Love. Now that yeah. I'm hearing it in my head. Yep. Oh, that was that's what song. we were going for. That's what we were going for. So you deliver If It Isn't Love, which was the great comeback song for them, just the energy of it, the drums in the beginning. I mean, you literally gave them their own sound because it wasn't like anything else. That, I don't know how you creatively could do that. It was like you had a little taste of your sound in everybody's record, but nothing was equal. It was all all different. And how were you able to mold all of them together like that? I mean, especially with a new person coming into the group, it could be difficult. Ralph was the lead singer. And then Johnny's voice is like, you know, come on, Johnny will diminish anybody's voice. How were you able to figure that out? <laughs> yeah, right. I like that. Johnny will diminish. He will. He's just his voice. No, is I love so that. That's, that's a great way to put it. Um, well, earlier we talked about how being a producer is a lot of times it's psychological more than anything. Right. The first thing we did is when everybody came to town, we sat in a conference room and we had a meeting. Basically, you had Ralph. I can't remember what the breakdown was. I think it was maybe Ralph and Ricky were against Johnny being in the group. And Ronnie and uh, Biv were for him being in the group. And um, we sat in the meeting and we basically said to Johnny, Johnny, I remember, was sitting at the head of the table. And we said, okay, so we're going to work on this record. But Johnny, you're not going to sing any really on this record because, you know, New Edition's not your group. It's Ralph's group. And... Johnny, at that point, could have said a whole lot of things. And what Johnny said was, hey, man, that's cool. I'm a team player, man. Whatever, right. whatever y'all need me to do, you know, right. cool, whatever, whatever, whatever. And what that did was it made the people that were against Johnny being in the group for Johnny being in the group. And it made Ralph feel like, okay, cool, all right. Well, it's still my, still my thing. Right. And what happened was they formed a bond because when making the record, when – Johnny was singing. Ralph would always sit in the control room and listen and be like, damn, that dude can sing. What? Right? Okay. But then when Ralph was in there singing, because Ralph did all the backgrounds. Everybody else, we filled backgrounds in around. Right. But Ralph would do every note. So right. he's all over all those records. But right. that was something that Johnny couldn't do. Right. Like, how's he hearing those harmonies like that? Right. And so it became a mutual respect type of thing. And once that happened, then that cleared the way to make the records. And strategically, our thing was the first record has to sound like a new edition record. Yep. The second record, which was um, You're Not My Kind, not of, my girl. kind of Girl. Love that one. We can then bring in a little bit of Johnny in there. We can right. start hearing his voice. Right, right. And then the home run was Can You Stand the Rain, which for us was like You Make Me Feel Brand New right. stylistics right. with the low voice and then the high voice right. coming in, whatever. That was kind of the idea. And now, but people had accepted Johnny as part of the group. Right. And then it allowed that to happen. So it was all very strategic. But then obviously you got to come up with the songs. But it was right. very strategic what we wanted to do. Because as fans of New Edition, and we were fans, because I remember we were in the time and we were in Boston in a club and heard Candy Girl for the first time. Right. And I remember going to the DJ and going, man, who is this? Right. It they came said, out of New nowhere. New Edition. I was yeah. like, oh my God, they're amazing. Yeah. And then we saw him in concert, I remember, in San Diego or somewhere uh, with Grandmaster Flash and a bunch of people. But we were always fans of them. So as fans, as producers, we could do the job. But as fans, we were informed, like, what we would like to see happen as fans. We would like to see them come out with a song that's up-tempo that they could dance to. Brooke Payne was a choreographer at that time. Yep. And Brooke was in town while we were recording. And so it was like the putting the... Right. All those things, that yeah. was all choreography. That was all like, 
give them spaces to do like little things. Yeah. That was Brooke. And when Brooke heard it, that was the thing that most excited him. Right. He's like, oh man, I know what I'm going to do for that. Right, right, like, right. It was like that. But all of those things informed what we actually came And up that with. video, if it isn't love video, was a very simple video, but yep. it really encapsulated everything you just said right there. Mm-hmm. Now I get it because when I listen to any heartbreak, I'm listening to it in my head. You gave Johnny that part. Yes. And it just, all of a sudden the record slowed down. Yep. And then he just builds it, he builds it up. But actually, my favorite song on that album is Boys to Men, dude. That, that was just, <laughs> you gave him that one, that record. And again, that's a timeless record, but just the way he sung it, he started off so soft. And he screamed at you at the end, but the track, I mean, again, another soft ballad song that flowed. Man, that's a great song. He, uh, he sang angry because he, he was angry. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. he said, this song is bullshit. Yeah, he sure did. I he didn't, he didn't like the song? Oh, no. he hated the song. Really? Yeah. yeah it give all these hits you give everybody else, you go get me on the sing on this old bullshit song. Yep. Wow. <laughs> yep. That's a great song. Uh, yeah. He, he and then they backed him up. He didn't. He didn't like it. Nah, he hated wow. that song. And if you think about the influence of that song, that song is the reason Boys to Men is called Boys to Men. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and if you think about Can You Stand in the Rain, that's the song that Boys to Men sang to audition for. I Biff. was there when it happened. I okay. was working, that was my radio station I was working at. They snuck backstage. I mm-hmm. saw the whole thing. I was the first person to play them on the radio. I was in the Motown Philly video. So, yep. like, all of that. Awesome. I remember all of that. And it was Can You Stand in the Rain? They blew everybody away. Right. You could imagine the chaos of a backstage. Um, uh, what's happening backstage at yeah. a concert because yep. that show that we used to do it was free so you had to win a ticket to it so we had a great lineup mm-hmm. and they blew i mean that was he signed them on the spot and that was that's a great great story and then you ended up writing um a couple songs for them you know big yeah. songs for them yep. let's talk about just a couple couple more songs i'm very thankful to have you guys here this is awesome Absolutely, um you did uh you remind me from usher mm-hmm. uh, again in the 2000s that's a massive record another awesome smash and it and i had to listen back to it because i was like this doesn't sound like i don't hear you the 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 normal jimmy jam and terry lewis where did Mm -hmm. that one come from so you remind me was actually la reed had a song the track was already done Mm -hmm. and usher had gone in to sing it and la called us and basically said okay i got this record it's either the first single or it's off the album. Wow. And we said, what do you mean? And he said, because Usher ain't singing it right. Like, he's like, he's trying to sing it like the demo, and it ain't, you know, whatever, whatever. And so I told him he needs to go back in and re-sing the song. And Usher said, the only way I'm going to go back in and sing this record is I'll do it with Terry. Right? So. There you go, Terry, said, boy. Hey, you right? Did. Right? So <laughs> I'm telling you, vocal master, Terry's vocal what? master. So they went you to L.A. Whisper, you're the music artist whisperer. <laughs> what? <laughs> so they, they went to L.A. And um, Terry had to basically, once again, we get into the psychology of it. Terry had to basically unlearn the song for him. Like, say, like, no, you have to unlearn what it is. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you have to make this your own song. Now right. we sing it like someone else sang it. Right? right, right. And they went through three days of that, of kind of unlearning it. And I remember when they came back, because I wasn't there, and I came back and Terry played me what the song was, and I was like, oh my, I was, it was amazing to me, because all of a sudden Usher embraced it, it sounded like his song, like he just took the song over. So it was psycho- a lot of it was psychological. And I remember we sent the song to L.A., and about two hours later, or whatever, we get a call, and he just said, first single. 
And so, um, and the gentleman that did the track was a guy named, he had a bunch of nicknames, Eddie, Hustle Child, whatever, I can't Butter. remember. Right, right. But he had a bunch of different names. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, no, but that, that, that was why that happened. And, um, and, and it was, ended up becoming a, a great song and a signature song for him. But once again, you go back to, if you think about all the different things we learned and all the education, go back to Leon Silvers telling us, if you can't produce vocals, you're not a producer. Right. And learning that lesson about how to produce vocals. But then Terry's brilliance is always, to me, the psychology or the psychiatry of getting people in the mental place, whether it's Phil Oakey in Human League to sing like a human being right, right, <laughs> instead right. of a computer or whatever those things are. That's, that's what Terry has. That's the magic wow. that he has. And that's what Usher had. And if you listen to not only that song, but if you listen to the songs on, on 8701, the thing on that album was always we wanted people to say Usher can sing because everybody would go, Usher's a great entertainer. And it's like, no, 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 but he can sing. Like, listen to the vocals. And like, when you li- listen to it, it would be like, damn, he can sing, you know? So that was part of our goal in, in that, doing the record like that. And then you did Sensitivity. Ralph Tresvant, finally he, gets his, he does his solo Yay, album and you deliver Ralph. that gem. Love Ralph. And Love you had, um, did you do Stone Cold Gentleman too? No, that was Elian Face that Stone Cold Gentleman. What was the other song on that album that you? What is the other song we you did? did? Uh, do do what do what I gotta do. Do what I gotta do. Yeah, reminds me sort of Boys to Men. Yeah, that was just the. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh man! And Ralph did all his own backgrounds, which yeah. was great. He's yeah. he's my favorite. I always say, and, and actually, they're born on the same day. Both him and Janet are born on the same really? day. Really? Yes. Wow. And they're my two favorite singers as far as stacking harmonies and doing that kind of stuff wow. from from back from my pop music days of. Mm-hmm liking the way harmonies were stacked, they're both the best at Wow. Doing that. We're about to wrap up, but, you know, of course you go on to do Janet in 1993, which was just, again, another classic album. And, again, you outdo the album before. I mean, that's just two things about Janet that is really hard to do, and, and you can't do that with a lot of artists. You would put the album out, and then you would literally have five singles. And so you would go a year and a half on an album, mm-hmm. and every song would be impactful. And it's really hard to do that. Like nowadays, I think labels maybe do two songs. They don't right. even go past that now. Once in a while, you maybe do three or four. Yeah, if but it's no. even an album. If it's even an album, it right, because it's just, singles, they're just yeah. songs. But mm-hmm. the Janet album, I mean, it was just, uh, again, That's the Way Love Goes, That uh, a classic. Again, she was in that movie with uh, Tupac. And then, yeah. you know, again, was just like the classic Poetic ballad. Justice. Yeah, yeah, Poetic Justice. Mm-hmm. Anytime, Anyplace, another great song off that album. That sold more than almost all of the albums, didn't it? it the did. Janet? Yeah. 20, 20 million Janet or something? Was, yeah. Janet, Janet was probably the biggest. And it was, it was interesting because there was a lot of, uh, pr- well, pr- there wasn't pressure on us mm-hmm. creatively. But there was a lot of pressure because at the time when that album was done, she had signed the biggest contract of any artist yeah. at that point. I think it was $40 million the, the Virgin or Records, like yeah, that. Yeah. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of pressure, yeah. and because um, her brother came right after that, right? Yes. Didn't he get the biggest deal right yes, after that? Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> was it weird because you know Michael was gigantic, right? And then he puts an album out in the early '90s, and but Janet was still like stacking. Oh, yeah. Was it a weird? Was there any competition there? Was it weird? Or I mean, because you ended up doing a record with both of them yeah. together, which was an amazing song. Yeah, Scream was interesting because we saw the competitiveness on that because. Um, you know, Michael, he called Janet and said, I want you to do a song, a song together. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
and I, but I want to use Jimmy and Terry. Right. And we called Janet and said, is it cool if we do something, you know, is that cool? And right. So we wanted to make sure. And she said, no, that's great. That's great. And I remember we had her come to Minneapolis when we were creating tracks. We said, right. we'll just create like six or seven tracks. Right. And I remember when we did the Scream track, she said, that's the one he's going to like. And I said, how do you know? And she said, because I know my brother. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, cool. And we went to New York. We played him all the stuff. That was, of course, the one he picked. And we did, did the records. When we went into the studio, somebody asked us the other day, like our most, I don't know, impactful or whatever studio moment that we can remember. And there's many of them, but the one that always sticks out to us is Michael in the studio because he walked in to sing the song, and Janet was there. And he walks in very quiet and very calm and whatever, and he goes, okay, okay, guys, I'm just going to run through, <laughs> right. you know, whatever. Nice and whatever, soft. Right, nice and soft. And the music comes on, and he's wearing all this jangly stuff, which you're not supposed to do in a studio, right. hard shoes. Right. And he's stomping and snapping and clapping and all the oh. things that you're not supposed to do, right, in, in a studio. And he's doing all this stuff, and he starts, Donovan, just this, right. whatever. He starts singing. And we're just, like, sitting there, like, just draws on the ground, just, like, oh, my God, like, fanning out. Like, oh, my God, that's Michael Jackson. Oh, my God. Like, it was crazy. It's like the Tasmanian Devil. Song ends, and there's, like, silence. He goes, how was that? <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. And he goes, you want me to take it again? We're like, yeah, yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah, do, do another take. Because we couldn't even forget it. Our producer, right. we couldn't produce nothing at that point. Right, 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 right. And so, anyway, Janet's sitting behind us. And she's supposed to do her vocal after Michael. How? Right? And then we're in New York, right? Right. She leans over to us, and she just goes, I'll do my vocal in Minneapolis. <laughs> she wanted no part of following that. And, and the rest I is history. Like, yeah. And so, so but, but, here's the, but here's the competitive part. She, he gets done singing, and then, you know, she, he goes, okay, Jan, you're going to go in and do your thing? And Janet goes, no, my voice is not good today. I'm going to do mine in Minneapolis. Okay. So anyway, we do our vocal in Minneapolis. So we send it to Michael. And he calls up, and he goes, hey, Janet sounds really good. We said, oh, thanks, Mike. I'm glad, glad you like it. No, she sounds really good. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, she did, she did a good job. No, she sounds really good. Where did she do that vocal? And I said, in Minneapolis. Oh, okay. I'm going to come to do Minneapolis to do my vocal. Wow. <laughs> and he came up to Minneapolis. Now, we ended up not, we used all the stuff from New York. We maybe right. used two lines from right, right, right. Minneapolis. But that was the competitive. That was Terry again with the psychology. Well, Just let was, him come. Let uh, him come to Minneapolis. No, we come to Minneapolis. But it was, but it was the competitiveness <laughs> right, between the sibling right. rivalry. Two of the biggest artists in the world at the time. Between them. Yeah. And, uh, and at one point, I remember we would send a mix. Like, and our engineer, Steve Hodge, we agreed that our engineer would do whatever Janet was involved with. Our engineer would do it. Right. Right. And Michael agreed to that. He said, okay, no, that's fine. Because Michael used a guy, Bruce Swedeen, who's, you know, amazing. Incredible. Incredible, Right. But for Janet, we knew the things we needed to do to make the vocal right, to make everything the way we recorded her. And I remember getting a mix of the song back, and they had done vo- her, changed her vocal. And we're like, wait, who did the vocal? Oh, Bruce did that. I said, no, 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 Steve is always going to do Janet's vocal. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. That's right. And a couple times, Janet called and said, hey, the mix sounds like my vocal's turned down. And I'm like, no. I said, we and like little stuff like that would happen. Terry balancing it out. Oh, my God, it was crazy. <laughs> so one so. other song that I didn't know that you guys did was Yolanda Adams' Open My, Open my, my Heart, Heart, which I remember 
that song was groundbreaking because, you know, I was a guy on hip-hop stations. We were playing those records in full rotation. It was really one of the, her and Kirk Franklin were the first two Mm -hmm. inspiration artists to, like, break down the doors and say, no, you're going to play us next to the, you know, the hip-hop records. And you deliver just a soft, beautiful record. And we used to play that right next to hip-hop songs. And that's, again, another timeless record, which leads me to The Sounds of Blackness, because when you started Perspective in the early 90s, when you put Optimistic out, which was sort of like an inspiration song. Absolutely. But Urban Radio, we were all over it. And, mm-hmm. and to me, it's a song that always makes me feel good no matter what. I, I mean, I don't purpose. know what the goal was when you made it, but... That's the, that's the purpose. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole concept of, of purpose-filled yeah. music. Yeah. You know, that music has a purpose. It's supposed to make us feel better about things. Um, one thing that Kenny Gamble said to me a long time ago, man, it stuck like, like a piece of gum, man, to your shoe. It, it, he said that music is supposed to be wholesome. It's supposed to feed you. It's supposed to leave you feeling better than you felt before you listened. And that always stuck to me. So anytime that we are able to, to make some inspiring music, yeah. We're all in. Oh, man. That was just, uh, you know, I believe another great song from The Sounds of Blackness. But what I loved about that song was it it gave you pride about black music, you know, and about being black. It was just, you know, the blackness. Keep on. Like, it's just like (laughs) before Wakanda. That was our our moment. That was was a before Wakanda moment when you heard the song. And it's timeless. Uh, Another one for me is uh, Black Butterfly. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know that that was one of those songs that I I, I wanted to write for my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, just to tell them how great they are, even though you might not even know it. I want you to understand That's a beautiful song. who you are. Yeah, mm-hmm. see, look at y'all like sprinkling <laughs> a, a song here or there. One other song too was um well not song but group that you found and created on your label was Men Condition. I remember when they came out ninety one uh, breaking my heart pretty bright. That was just unlike anything we heard on the radio, mm-hmm. and it was just a beautiful song. And I always loved Stokely Sound, and I know you all are still working with them today. Yeah. That's just such an amazing talent that you guys found. And again, timeless. Well, coming from a band, you know, we'd always grown up in bands, and coming from a band, it was like important to us at Perspective. Sounds of Blackness was our first signing. Men Condition was our second signing. It was important to have a band represented. And literally, we know at the time that there wasn't going to really be any more bands, which was pretty crazy to us to think about. But that was always really important. And it was interesting because I remember when we turned the record in, the label at the time didn't, they said there's no hits on the record. And it was crazy. And I remember we went down, Terry went down in a Winnebago. We had, there was a girl named uh, Sheila Eldridge who uh, was our publicist. You know Sheila? So Sheila was our publicist. And she said, you know, what we should do is we should go to all the black colleges and have people submit videos for the song. And, you know, we'll see what happens, right? And Terry went down in a Winnebago and stuff, and this is back in the fax machine days, but I remember the hotel didn't even have fax machines or whatever. They had roaches. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but anyway, I remember then sitting in a marketing meeting, you know, I don't know, maybe three weeks later, and before, and they would always go around to each of the people and go, you know, what's your record doing? What's your record doing? And then before they even could get to us, this guy goes, oh my God, this mint condition record is top five at such and such and such and such. And everybody looked at us and said, how'd you do that? And we, because it wasn't, because it wasn't at the urban station, it was right. the top five at the pop station. Right, right. And so how'd you do that? 
And it's like, well, Terry went on a Winnebago, and then we did this little contest to get you know people and, and whatever. But they would always tell us, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. No, we don't have a budget for that. We don't have a budget. Just do it. And we would just go and do it. Right. And then there would always be a result. Optimistic was the same way. Yeah. We, went and, we took Sounds of Blackness in New York. From the, Philly. From Philly. What was that travel budget? Oh, my God. It was like. It, it was coming out of our pocket. It was straight out of our pocket. We put them on two buses to Philly for the IM convention. Right. Yeah. So right. We, we took them in and, you know, we met people there. Oh, you know, you guys should bring this to New York. Right. So we did. Yeah. We sent half of them home. We brought another half to New York. Yeah. And we sang everywhere, restaurants, subways, the street. Street corners. Everywhere. We, anywhere we could sing. Anywhere we could. Wow. And, and we would meet people along the way. Yep. And we got in and. When we left New York, the next week we were, I don't know, 60 spins at BLS or whatever, and it was the same thing. It was like, wait a minute, you guys got 60 spins at BLS. How'd you do that? And I said, well, like, remember you told us don't take the group to New York, but we took the group to New York. Right, right. And this was the result of that. And, you know, you say later a number one record, Grammys, and all of that. The best part of it was of that record, and that record I will just say is our favorite record we've ever done. Really? Yes, easily. Like Out of everything. Even, that's easy. Yeah. Wow. Between that open my heart. Yeah, because of, of what music is supposed to do. Right. It's supposed to fulfill you. Yeah. And when people talked about that record, they didn't go, oh, man, that's a banging record, or that's whatever. They said, when I was feeling down, that's the record I put on, or that's wow. my record I put on when I work out in the morning. Yeah. Or when my mom died, or when my dad died, or what, whatever those things were, mm-hmm. that was the song. I remember when, not to be political, when Trump was elected, that record came back out again. Chance the Rapper put that record out, you know, dancing to it again. Yeah. And it was a time where black people in particular needed some sort of affirmation. Mm-hmm. And that record rose again. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it was, there's times where, you know, you need to feel good about your blackness. And that record did that for people. But it did it for people across the board. Yeah. And that's the importance of music to me. The divinity of music. Yeah. And when we can do that, that to me is why all the other hits happened. So that I'll open my heart and optimistic. The, the creative freedom to do happen. those things, yeah. And now, Till I Found You, which is a new Sounds of Blackness record. Right. That's the reason those records exist, or we're allowed to exist to make those kind of records. Yeah. Is that L.A. Reid was listening to some of ours the other day and said it was like, he, he felt like there was a cavity in his soul that just had gotten filled listening wow. to it. That he didn't even know existed. He didn't know that there was a cavity, and then right. he heard some some of the records we're working on, and he was like, "Okay, yeah, now I feel it." Right. If we can do that, then to me, that's the divinity of music because wow. it's that same thing of when you hear a record, you remember the first time you said "Miss You Much," first time you heard it, where you were, yeah, whatever. It's like that's the thing. Music unlocks all those things in your mind. It's all there in your mind. But then, how crazy is it that in schools we take music away? We learn language to an alphabet which is melodic, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's how we learn it. But then we go in schools and we go, oh, no, take the music program away. Right. It's the most important thing we have. Yeah. So I'm done preaching. But that's, my, that's just my thought about it. And so we have the opportunity to do that. And we're also, we think, now pretty accomplished and pretty good at what we do. We have the experience. So if we can make music that really culturally moves us and fills our soul, you know, and when we really need, I think, our souls filled at a point in this time, then I think it's the commonality. It's the music is the commonality that brings us together. It's what brings me, us, and you know, the yeah. three of us together yeah. is music. Your yeah. memories of whatever it was that we created and stuff, and, and that's what brings us together. 
we wouldn't be sitting together if it wasn't for that. And there's something like that. When you go to a concert, people next to you, you don't know. But when that beat hits or those words hit and you all of a sudden are like. All it brings you, you together. Yeah. Yeah. Think about that. That's divine, man. So, um, uh, Jimmy, Terry, I want to thank you all for your time and for, uh, for doing the Backstory Podcast. This is just amazing. And just real quick, you guys are putting out a compilation album on Perspective, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about this compilation album and the who's who that's going to be on this project. Well, the Jam and Lewis album actually started back earlier when we talked about the What Have You Done For Me Lately story. Right. That was intended for the Jam and Lewis album, or what was going to be the Jam and Lewis album back then. Okay. So now that was in... 30 80, years later? 85. Yeah, that was 80, 85, yeah, when wow. we were doing, doing that. So now... 35 years. Right? 35. So you had that on the back burner. 35 years so, later. So now it's finally going to come out. Yeah. It's so on Simmer. Got, it's on Simmer. Okay. And, um, but really, it's, um, really the album is very simple. It's artists who we really love doing the songs that we would like to hear them do. Wow. With no, you know, I won't say record company interference. I, I can't, I never can think of a, a better way to say it. I, there's a better way to say it. Because interference, I don't want to imply that the record company interferes. But it's basically what we want to do as fans. So the idea is people like Tony Braxton. We always wanted to work with Tony Braxton. So we did a song with Tony. And I remember we played it for some people, and their reaction was, I just remembered why I fell in love with Tony Braxton. Wow. So if that's what we are able to achieve with it, then that's what it is. Because the artists, whether it's, there's a lot of great artists that have recorded, that we've collaborated with. A lot of them are friends of ours, people like Morris Day. People like uh, Boys to Men, people like Janet Jackson. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. People like Babyface. Um, really? Yes. And, and it's like people who we always either wanted to work with or worked with before. But the idea is to make the record that when you hear it, you just go, that's the way I want them to sound. Or it reminds you of their greatness. Because in doing that, it also reminds those groups and those artists of their greatness. Because a lot of times... You know, Terry always says, I love his saying, he says a barber can't cut the back of his own head. So that means that somebody can be looking at the mirror, in the mirror at themselves, and that's what they see. It's like, right. yeah, I'm cool, or I'm not cool, or whatever that is. But we can look from a different perspective and look at them and go, yeah, well, we just need to trim that little back thing. We can get that kitchen taken care of back there a little bit. <laughs> or, you know. So that really is what it is. It's really us doing what we feel we do the best, which is recognize the beauty and the talent of each of the artists and then doing the best song and the best production to make that happen. Charlie Wilson, we have a song with him. Wow. Um, you know what I mean? So really that's the idea of, of, of what the album is. And it's been, you know, long in the making. And we also have a technological component that goes with it um, where we're mixing in uh, an immersive surround system, which is available now and a lot of cars have immersive systems, which is great. But we're also doing it in a headphone technology too. But we're trying to make it so that it's not a gimmick thing where when you hear the music, you go, I want to hear all the music like this because it gives value to the music and it gives value to the people that create the music. And I think that's important to do. Um, the final thing is, I, I'll just say about it is that what we want to do at this point in our careers, I think, is leave music in a better place than we found it. Music has treated us so well. It's taken us around the world. It's raised our kids. It's done a million beautiful things for us we want to do those things for music we want to give back to music like that in that way and this album for us is kind of that one of the steps in doing that there's other things too but that's one of the steps to do it wow 
It kind of reminds me of um, 89, Back on the Block, Quincy Jones. Mm -hmm. And we have not had another album like that since then. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, thank you all so much for your time today and being on the Backstory Podcast. Thank Thank you you for having us, man. Awesome. That was great. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast. Fat Joe. Yo, I got a store up in the Bronx called Fat Joe's Halftime. And what's that all about? It's just about, you know, investing back in the community and having like a foundation. Too many rappers before me, you know what I'm saying? So millions of records. And then bring you it see back them to now the and they, and, they, and they like poor, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so I'm like, yo, what's going to happen when this rap career is over? You know what I mean? Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast. You can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level.